0: Open your Bibles with me, if you would please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to continue today in the study of 1 Peter, theme of it being stand firm. Matt did a great job last week reminding us that we are due judgment, and until then we suffer waiting till that judgment day. <laughs> you know? no, that was his own joke, so I'm just picking up on it. No, it was an excellent teaching. I've heard many of you comment on it already, and we talked about it a little bit this week with a group of folks from the church who so got together and had dinner. And I want to pick up in chapter two and build on, on the heart of what God is, is doing through this book. If you would just uh, read along with me, I'm going to do the first 12 verses of chapter two, ESV version. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, in all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, I ask very simply today that the words I speak would be your words, that, Lord, that your heart and your wisdom and your purposes would come through the words that I speak to the hearts of your people today. We ask, Father, in the name of Jesus that in the day in which we are living, that our eyes would be opened to the greatness of our God as we've sung and declared already today. We pray that we would see things as they really are, that we would understand what is true, that we would have wisdom and discernment to live our lives in this day in accordance with the word that we've just read. Lord, that we might declare the excellencies of you, our God who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And we thank you again today for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself for us. Lord, we love you and we worship you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this morning's teaching, and I actually got it from a title that one of the commentaries that Matt was um, He referred to, as we were talking about this series, and this section of Scripture was titled by one of the commentators, Be Who You Are. Be who you are. Kind of an interesting statement. You can go, well, duh. But you know, it's amazing how, in many ways, rare that is. How hard for us, just in our humanity even at times, to just be really who we are seems like so many people want to be something else or someone else, but there's nowhere that it is more important than as a believer to be who you are. And so what I'm going to be talking today out of this text about is really just very simply the issue of identity, of growing in a greater understanding of who we are, who God has made us to be, not just in our individual lives, but in our being in Christ corporately, being who we really are. The context for these verses, these 12 verses of 1 Peter 2, really go back to chapter 1 because he he begins with the, in the ASV, ESV version with a simple word, so, which has an inference to it, meaning that it's because of what I've just previously said. And I really believe this is referring to, to chapter 1, verse 22. If you'd look back at verse 22... He says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been, here it is, this is what the sow is referring to, verse 23, since you have been born again. Not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the so in verse 1 of chapter 2 is speaking of this truth that you have been born again. And and I'll tell you honestly, this week as I was praying and thinking about this and studying, I had an interesting experience take place for me. It was like God dropped this into my heart. I had the sensation and the remembrance of when I got saved in 1975. It was as though the Lord allowed me to remember, as as we've been saying already this morning as well, remember that week. It was a week's period of time when my life was radically, sovereignly changed by the grace of God and the love of God. And I had all of the emotion. I felt it again. It It was wonderful. And I was just thinking about how this this truth of being born again, it's something we say that so easily in our Christian experience now as believers, but it's such a deep and profound truth. It's such a mystery that is in Scripture, this truth that when a man or a woman comes to Christ and puts their faith in Christ, they are born anew. They are born again. They are reborn And it doesn't matter if you're born into a Christian home and as far back as you can remember, you don't know anything other than being a a Christian in in your own mind. The reality of it is that every single man and woman in this room is born into sin. When we're born initially through the birth canal into this world, you are born a sinner separated from God. And, And the Bible teaches you're born dead in that sin and under the condemnation of the sin's guilt and shame and power. And it isn't until we believe, it isn't until we believe that Christ died and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross's work that we are born again. It's by the Spirit of God that we are made new. We don't preach this enough anymore. I think we assume it. And so as a result, I think we have, a, sadly, churches filled with people who are not truly born again. They're church people. They're church goers. They've added church to their life like they've added soccer to their kids' lives. And they do it now because they have a need that they need to do something more. But there's never been this experience of being reborn by the power of the Spirit of God. It's sad to me. But the Bible it teaches clearly this truth of, of the need to be reborn. I want to show you a slide that just lists some of the New Testament um, scriptures that speak of this truth, if you'd put that up for me, please. Can you read it? Yeah, it's too, too stinking small. And I can't read it here either. So yeah, that was a great slide. And uh, if you really want it, then I'll send it to you. <laughs> there's some good stuff on there. Yeah, there's some really good stuff on there. <laughs> on the- All right, I'll read it to you. How's that? Put it up again for me, Dave. All right, listen to this. John 13. John, John uses the language more than anybody. He says, born of God. John 3.3, you are born, you must be born again. He said to Nicodemus, John 3, 5, Jesus explains it, being born of water and the Spirit. John 3, 6, born of the Spirit. Again in John 3, 7, born again. John 3, 8, born of the Spirit. Listen to the language. Ephesians, Paul's language, God, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Colossians 2, you who were dead, God made alive together with him. Titus, Paul says, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. James puts it this way, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Peter says he has caused us to be born again. Again, he says, you have been born again. John again in 1 John, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 1 John 4, whoever loves has been born of God. 1 John, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Born of God, 1 John 5, 4, born of God in in 1 John 5 as well and a little later in that chapter. Born of God, born again, made new, brought forth by the Spirit of God. We're so familiar with that term that it's almost lost its mystery, its beauty, its awe. But the verse that probably illustrates it most clearly is 1 John 3, 9, when he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, sperma, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, that verse has always been troublesome to me. Because it doesn't leave any wiggle room. Be who you are, is what John is saying in another way there. We know that this means that the life of God has saved us through regeneration, a second generation There has been a new birth, there's been a new life that's come forth, a new existence by the power of the Spirit of God indwelling a man or a woman or a child because of faith in Christ. And that is the life of God. And it's the life that I'm going to talk about today for a few moments. In a sense, it's defining what it really means to be a Christian to be a Christ follower. If we ask today, what does it mean to be a Christian? You would get so many different answers depending on a person's theology, depending on the church they attend. If they even attend church, which by the way, I'm hearing because of COVID, a lot of people are deciding now not to go back when they can just stay home in their pajamas and watch it online. No. It was interesting in one of our commitments that we asked for from covenant members, is to be faithful here, not because we want to keep track, but because it's what imparts life to us, through us, through one another. There's so much confusion about what a Christian is today. Everything has been politicized. Is it only to be on the far left, a social justice warrior, or on the far right, a Christian nationalist? Is that what it means to be a Christ follower in America today? Many people think that's what it means, one or the other. The question is, what involvement should there be with the world? Should we be fully engaged or totally disengaged? There's all sorts of debate and confusion. These are legitimate questions, and there should be discussion around them and clarity. I was thinking this week again how So much Christian theology was settled through the centuries by debate. They had huge arguments. I mean, they had knocked down, dragged out battles over theology. Pelagius and Augustine fought over whether or not a man can choose to believe or it has to be sovereign. Pelagius believed free will could never be usurped that God gave man free will. Therefore, it was totally up to man whether or not he believed. Augustine said, no, man. It's God who determines whether or not a man or a woman believes. And they battled over that. They wrote papers and letters back and forth, called each other names. We're so afraid today to debate. We're so afraid to disagree in the church because it's unloving. Because we want to be nice. No, we need to to settle some things. We need to settle some things theologically because what you believe determines how you live. A Christian is what Peter says and what John and Paul have said. A Christian is a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman who has been born of God to have been made alive by God and with God, and for God. This is radical in every sense, and we should never lose our sense of awe and wonder at the grace of God and the power and the miraculous nature of the new birth. The plan of God to restore a fallen creation one life at a time. Amazing. I want to tell you quickly a little bit about my own story in the context of what I'm teaching this morning. I was raised, raised in a very good Catholic family. We went to church. It's called Mass. Every single Sunday and every holy day. And I i have a, I have a very vivid remembrance of my sense of what it meant to be religious, to be a good, young, Catholic boy. My parents even sent me in summer to Catholic classes all summer long, five days a week through the summer, just to get more catechism in my heart and mind of Catholicism. Kath was raised the same way. She went to Catholic school the first eight years of her life. But I have a sense of my life then that was dominated by coming into a cathedral or a Catholic church. If you've never been in one, they're filled with smells and there's a sense, there's a different sense in a Catholic church than in any other kinds of buildings. And it's kind of a good thing in a sense because there's an awe that God is there But I remember coming in, and all I remember as a kid was an altar, and behind an altar, a huge crucifix with Jesus hanging on it. Every Catholic church that I ever was in as a kid always had this crucifix with Jesus hanging on the crucifix. And because of the theology of Catholicism and my parents' understanding of what it meant to be a Christian or a good Catholic, I grew up with insurmountable guilt. I grew up with a great sense that I was just a sinner and that I needed to somehow perform or live my life in a way that was what Holden was talking about earlier, worthy of being loved by God. I went to confession when I was, for the first time, when I was seven years old, before I took my first communion. And I remember the feeling of confessing sin and feeling forgiven, having been raised in this atmosphere of guilt. But the problem was it only lasted for a brief, short time, because it wasn't very long after that I sinned right away again. For me, Christianity or at this point, Catholicism was simply always lived at the foot of a cross, of a crucifix, with a suffering Savior hanging on it. It meant that I was always only aware that I was a sinner who needed forgiveness. I never had any hope or consciousness that anything would or could ever change. I lived with a continual sense that God was displeased with me, and he was continually frustrated with my behavior. And I was frustrated knowing that I would never be able to live up to what I believed God wanted of me until I'd reached the age of about 14 when I finally gave up and I no longer cared. So a young boy born with a soft conscience, which I did have, with a desire to please and a desire to obey, was so guilt-ridden and so unable to ever see any hope that I finally just abandoned it and I allowed my conscience to be seared through sin and what I gave myself to. Paul describes this experience vividly in Romans chapter 7. Turn there with me if you would. This is a very controversial text And here's another example where it needs to be debated, and it has been debated by theologians. But I've landed clearly on one side of this that might be different than what you yourself have ever thought. Romans 7. Paul is talking about the law and sin coming to his consciousness because of his understanding of the law. Who was Paul? He was a young Jew who grew up in a very sound Jewish home, who learned the law, the Torah at a very young age, who actually knew it well, probably as a young man, as a young boy, as a young man into his life. And something happened with him that's similar to what I just explained to you, is that the more he became aware of what God wanted for him, the more he became aware that he couldn't do it. And so he writes about this in Romans 7. He's speaking of the law in verse 13. He says, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, now, he's talking about his experience before conversion. Many people will take this text and teach it that he's talking about after conversion. I do not believe that. This is important because this is the battle of confusion that we struggle with and I'm addressing today. Who do we see ourselves to be? Who do we understand we are now in light of what God has done for us in Christ. He says, for I do not understand, verse 15, my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He's wanting to live according to the law. He's wanting to obey. He's wanting to be a good Catholic boy. Jew for him. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for here 's the key: I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out for I do not for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing now, if I do what I do not want, it is No longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. And then he says in verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? See, I I don't know if any of you had that experience in your life, but I, I had it so incredibly vividly as a young man. I wanted to live rightly. I knew, I remember doing things and I remember the guilt and the shame after I, as I was doing them. Because my conscience was, was still open to the righteousness that is in Christ. But I never knew, I never knew that I could not accomplish it in my own. It wasn't until I met the Savior and he cleansed me of the guilt and the shame And the power of God indwelt me that I realized there was a life now that I could live because of his life in me. Paul answers his own question. He says in verse, he says, wretched man, who will deliver me? He says, verse 25, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so I serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh. I, I serve the law of sin. Therefore, is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And here it is, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Because you're born again. And so a few years ago, I coined this phrase through my study of new creation. And the phrase that I felt the Lord put into my heart was learning how to live on the other side of the cross. What do I mean by that? Rather than living only at the foot of the suffering Savior, don't get me wrong. We are can always aware of the cross of Christ and always grateful for the cross and its forgiveness. But my identity is no longer as a sinner in need of saving. My identity is no longer as a guilt-ridden man, condemned in my heart because of my failure and my inability to live the way that I should. But now I've stood because of the grace of God, and I have walked through that cross, in a sense, and now I live on the other side of that cross in my new creation life. And I look back at that cross now behind me, never forgetting its power and its work. But now the finished work of Christ is finished, and now it is the life of new creation to be lived. I live now on the other side of that cross, and that's who I am. That has become now My identity. And that's what Peter is talking about here. He's saying, So then live this way, in light of that truth. Life on the other side of the cross is the life of new creation, this is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is the life that looks back at the cross, doesn't live at the foot of it. Now don't you know, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. When I sin, I come to the cross in faith. And I receive forgiveness. And I will kneel at the foot of that cross. And I wouldn't, but not in shame. And not in condemnation, but in a confession of my thankfulness and my need for grace. And then I stand again and I walk again, knowing that I'm forgiven. Knowing that I'm a son loved by God. Knowing that my identity is not as a sinner. My identity is as a righteous son clothed in Christ Now there is a battle that Paul describes but it isn't in Romans 7 it's in Galatians 5 he says the war the spirit and the flesh war against one another within me Notice the difference the spirit and the flesh war within me But I know who the victor is in that battle I know that when I yield to the spirit I know that when I say no to sin that the spirit of God is able at that moment of temptation, to keep me. Deliver us, Lord. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us by the power of your life at work within us. So there is a battle, but it is isn't Romans 7, of, oh, the thing I want to do, I'm, I can't do, and the thing that I can't, don't want to do, I'm doing, and, oh, who wretched man I am. That's not the battle of the, of the Christian life. That's the battle of the pre-Christian life. That's the battle of the religious man or woman who wants to obey, of the young child whose conscience is still soft, who doesn't want to do what everyone else is doing, but is tempted before conversion. No, the battle of the Christian life is simply the flesh within me, which is never going to be fully dealt with until Christ returns or until he takes me home. But it is increasingly put to death It's put to death increasingly. I'm conformed into the image of Christ through this progression of my faith and the Spirit of God at work. Are you understanding this? Be who you are is what Peter is saying. Quit living. It's it's like the age-old story of the young prince or the young princess who, who doesn't know their true inheritance and they end up in a home or a family that is not one of royalty and they grow up as a pauper, but really they are all along the prince or the princess. Quit living like the pauper, Peter is saying. You're children of God. If you've been born again, the spirit of God lives within you. You are a child of God. And as Nano said so succinctly earlier, it's it's because of his righteousness, not our own. Romans 8 goes on to describe this freedom that comes because we are born again. Sadly, too many believers still live with the shame of their sense of failure and their inability to live the Christian life. And I really believe that is due not to anything more than bad theology. Bad theology in the church. Performance theology. Guilt and shame and legalism heaped upon the church. Trying to live better. Trying to do better. Trying to prove we're worthy. Trying to earn God's favor. In verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I can. He says, put away. So he says, put away. Put away sin. Put away all of these things. That word put away is a really strong word in the Greek. It means a rupture from a former association. It's not like folding your clothes and putting them away. It's like... It's like when the Olympians and the, and the ancient Greece would run, they would tear their clothes off as they ran to, to get themselves uninhindered. That was the word. And they would enter the, the Colosseum almost naked after they'd been running because they were tearing their clothes off. It's the, it's the word that is used in Acts 7 when they took their, their, their coats off and they threw them at the feet of Saul, the young man, and they still picked up stones to kill Stephen. They didn't just take their coats off. They tore their coats off in their anger. That's what the word is there. Put away. Strong word in the Greek. And he goes on in this chapter now and he will begin to tell us who we really are. And this is the point. He gives a series of metaphors of, of pictures to describe this life on the other side of the cross. I'm sorry, my voice is kind of weak. What this life is really to be on the other side of the cross, a life that is born of God, a life that is a God-given life, a life, what it means to live in a fallen world, a world that is alienated from God. First of all, We need nourishment like a newborn baby, he says. Spiritual nourishment. We need spiritual nourishment that comes from the Word of God. And he says it is by this means that we grow up into salvation. Now, he doesn't mean that we are all immature. That's not his point. His point is that if there's new life, that you are born into, doesn't it make sense that you need to nourish that new life? Even like a child needs nourishment to live. And I would honestly say to you the degree to which this attributes the sins of verse 1 and all the other sin that we cater to and we foster, the degree that we have those will be the degree to which the hunger for the Word of God will be diminished the degree to which you allow sin that you don't put it off not out of earning but simply because that's not who i am anymore my heart really doesn't want that oh i'm tempted but if you ask me is that really what you want i go no 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 i want i want him I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to be close to him. I want to please my Lord. I'm tempted. And I have vulnerabilities, absolutely. And I have to recognize what those vulnerabilities are because the flesh wars against the Spirit of God in me. And if I'm foolish and if I'm casual, then I can diminish my hunger for the Word of God because of sin. I mean, my wife is a really good cook, and she cooks really healthy food. But if I ate a Big Mac every afternoon, I'd never want to eat her dinner. That's what we do spiritually. We eat crud, and then we're not hungry for spiritual nourishment. Now, everything I'm saying that sounds like we need to do something, yeah, we do. We don't fall out of bed and grow in Christ. We give ourselves in faith, right? right? In an obedience. Obedience is a result of my love for Christ. It doesn't earn anything, it proves a lot. Obedience doesn't earn anything, it proves a lot. He goes on and he says in in verse 5, we are living stones. He says, as you come to him, he is the living stone, he says in verse 4, the one that was rejected by men. He says in verse 5, you also, you are living stones. We are a living temple of God. Now, there, there is an individual aspect to this, but there's a corporate as well. And I want you to hear this, please. American Christianity is individualism. It's so sickening. It's always just about me. What's best for me? What do I really like and want? What kind of worship do I like? What kind of teaching do I like? What kind of church is going to be the kind I. You know, get over yourself. This is not about us, it's about Him. And Christianity, in its very nature, is corporate. There's a corporate identity, and you find your individual identity within that corporate identity. That's why covenant membership is so important. Because when you say, yes, I'm willing, you're giving up your right to that individual life. And you're saying, no, you know, suddenly now your life is as important as mine to me. I'm committed to you equally that I am for myself. Are you hearing this? We are this living temple, and that means everyone has value. Everyone has a place. That's not just trite Christianese. It's true. Everyone has a place. We are like living stones. Some of these stones are odd-shaped. Man, they need to be chiseled, and they need to be buffed, and they need to be polished, and they need a hammer taken to them sometimes. So they can fit. Some are just very nice. They're very symmetrical. And they just, you know, they grew up and they're nice and healthy. Most of us are not. Most of us have these funky edges that God has to... Te- but he places us together. And, he, and we grow up together. We learn to love one another in our funkiness. We learn to give each other the benefit of the doubt. We learn to believe the best of each other. We learn to give grace. We bear with one another. And when an edge is like poking us in the ribs, we, we, we speak truthfully and love about it. Hey, you're, you're, you're killing me. You're killing me here with this thing. I'm trying to walk with you, and you're killing me because I love you. The church is a living organism. It's not an organization it's not a business. It's not something we market. It's gro- it grows because of the life of God within it and the life of God through it. He goes on and he says in verse, and I'm skipping a bunch of good stuff, but I need to. He goes on in verse 9 and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen holy people who belong to God. Basically, Peter takes Exodus chapter 19, 5 and 6, and he just puts it in his own words. And here's the powerful truth. The church is the new Israel of God. If you notice in the beginning of this book, he's writing to those that are the the dispersed. He uses the word the same would be true of, of Israel scattered throughout the nations. But he's not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. And he speaks to them as though they were Jews because he's teaching them a powerful truth. You now are the new Israel of God as the church. And so he uses these terms, all of which were given to Moses to talk to Israel as being a chosen, holy people of God. And just as Israel was to be God's means of making his glory known to the nations around them, so is the church. Paul Peter says we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and delight, but not through our strength. In fact, in spite of our weakness, even through suffering, probably especially through suffering. And just as Israel was chosen, not because it was the greatest, the Lord said to Moses, I have not chosen this nation because you are the greatest, but because you are the least. Same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the wise. The least, he says, to shame those who think they're the greatest. We are chosen of God. You are chosen of God. Say that, I am chosen of God. Brothers and sisters, you can hang your hat on that and live your whole life with that one truth just ringing in your ears. He chose you to be his. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he says this. He says, Beloved, I urge you then, because of this, as sojourners in exile. So we are, we are a people in exile on the earth. We're pilgrims in exile. Wow. You know, it was beautiful in, 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 in Daniel and in Jeremiah when they were speaking to Israel, as it was in exile in Babylon, and Jeremiah said, listen, he said, let your roots go down deep in the city that I've planted you in. He said, said, plant gardens, have families, build homes, have a life in Babylon. He said, go ahead so that you can be seen to be a blessing to that city. And yet we know that Jesus said, we are not of this world. Look at John 17 very quickly. John 17. It doesn't get any clearer than this. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. John 17, 13. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Have families, have lots of kids, have lots of kids. Love your wives, have a home, have a plan, give yourself to the people around you, give yourself to be a blessing in the city, but you are not of this world. You're a pilgrim and an in exile, but while you're here, be a blessing, be a blessing. Blessing. But your identity, you gotta get it clear. You gotta see clearly who you really are. So when your boss says, listen, I want you to work from now on 65 hours a week, through the weekends usually, you can look at him and you can say, you know, all due respect, I've got a family, I cannot do that. The money is not as important to me as my family. Because I'm, you wouldn't say this to him, but in your mind you're thinking, because I'm not of this world. I will serve you well, and I will work hard for you, but I will not compromise who I am and what's most important. Right. To live and walk as God's new humanity means, which is what we are, that we have to have a clear sense of our identity, and I'm landing here. A clear understanding of what's true. We have to know who we are and we have to know what's true. We are dependent on our God for life. We are a spiritual community, a new temple of God on the earth, a living temple. We are the true Israel of God. We are the chosen of God. We have been called out of darkness to declare His excellencies in a dark world. But we are pilgrims living in exile on this earth until. The Lord returns. And so I just simply ask you this question as I close. Which side of the cross do you live on? Do you live only with a sense of guilt and a sense of a needing to get it together? Is your conscious, consciousness of yourself only that of a person in need? Only uh, is a person aware of your own sinfulness all of the time? Or do you live on the other side of the cross? Have you gotten off of your knees, you wicked, vile sinner, and stood and begun to walk now as a new creation in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, alive by the power of the indwelling spirit within you? Yes, flawed. Yes, vulnerable. Yes, still unfortunately sinning at times but whose mind is being renewed, whose character is being transformed, and who is certain as to who they really are. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off, put off your old man which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new man, created after the likeness of our God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. Be who you are. Be who you are. are. Walk is whom you really are. Amen.